Wonderful. All right. So, anybody tell me what the theme of the last week was? Trust. Trust me. Trust me. Yes, God says, trust me over and over again in our lessons from last week. Trust me over and over and over again. <clears throat> and this is a God who pursues relationships with people, isn't it? He's a God who pursues us, even though we don't deserve to be pursued. He pursues a relationship with us and wants a relationship with us. And is a God, he is a God who does not give up on people. Even though he could, even though he has probably every, every right to, he doesn't give up on us, which is always very encouraging to me. And out of last week, what was one life that kind of stood out as a good example of trust me? Do you guys remember? Joseph. Good example of trust me. You can see a lot of good exa- or, well, good examples of bad examples of trusting him over and over again. But there's a good example there in Joseph. Trust me. And Joseph does trust him. And it, and it seems to indicate that in the text, that Joseph really does trust him. Attributes all the things that happened to him to God's working his will and his, his way. Even the bad stuff that happens to him, God meant it for good. Even the bad stuff. Man, it's a God who never gives up and never surrenders us. And he asks us to do the same about him. The trust me thing, going back to even, you know, Genesis, he asked Adam and Eve, trust me. Trust me that what I say good is, is good. And trust me that what I say bad is bad. And, and trust me there. And they weren't willing to completely trust him. It's the same thing. I, I brought this, this point out in class on Wednesday night about 1 John 1, 9, when he talks about, I am asking you to agree with me, that homologio, to, to say the same thing as I say. So pretty much say the same thing that I say, God says. If I say this is bad, then it's bad, right? If I say this is good, then this is good. Say the same thing as I say. First thing we're going to look at today from the rest of Exodus, because you've got Exodus and you've got Leviticus, and Exodus really is introducing himself to God's people. He's really introducing himself. He's giving him them an introduction to who he is and what he desires and, and how he wants things done and how he wants to be worshipped. This is me, and this is what I'm asking of you. Then you go into Leviticus, and it's God's standards. It's God's sacrifices. He, he lists all these things out. As we get into Leviticus and we get into the book of Numbers, this is kind of where we're going to pick up in Numbers. I've got several drawings that I've done for this one. I'm not sure which one I'm going to use. I'm going to try, I'm going to try this one. Let's see if you can tell what it is. It should be kind of evident because it'll look really good, of course. Of course. It might remind you of a game you played as a child. <laughs> there you go. Kind of like that. Not exactly locusts. You don't have to guess anymore if you don't want to. Obviously, it did not come across that good. Yeah, cricket. Cricket, small, tiny. Cricket. Cricket. Forty year, 400 years, God has promised these land, this land. God's going to bring them into the land. But here we're going to cover kind of Numbers 11 through 14, a little, you know, smattering of Numbers 11 through 14, because there's a big story in Numbers 11 through 14. God says, trust me, and remember what I did for you in the past. Trust me. You, could, you would think that, that you, could, you could believe a God who has led you out of Egypt, right? Who's done all of these wonderful things. But what happens? Chapter 11, they have some freedom from slavery. They're, they're free in terms of being slaves to Egypt, but now they have some trouble with that freedom that God has given them, and he's asking them to trust him in their freedom and trust me in how I'm leading you out of here. In fact, look at chapter 11 of Numbers. And look at verses 21 and 22, and look at who has problem 
trusting God again for what, you know, he should be able to trust God about at this point, you would think. But how, how often do we do the same exact thing with God? 21, but Moses said, the people among whom I am are 600,000 on foot. Yet thou hast said, I will give them meat in order that they may eat for a whole month. What, is that, what does that kind of sound like? Is Moses saying, who do you think you are, God, that you can feed all of these people? It's, it's kind of what Moses is saying. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the flesh of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? Moses is saying, hey, God, you better check yourself here. Do you, th- you really think you can feed all these people? Why isn't God just reaching down and kind of slapping Moses' face and saying, do you remember who I am? Do you know who I am? Do you know who you're talking to, Moses? Do you remember who this God of yours is? Can I not feed 600,000 people? If I want to, I can feed them like that. I'm God. You would think that Moses would be saying, okay, do it, God. And not saying, hey, how are you going to do this, God? This doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that Moses says that. But I say the same thing sometimes in my own life. I don't trust God all the time. I say, how could you do that, God? Or I try to take things back from him and say, I think I could take care of that for you, God. And he says, do you not remember everything I've done for you in the past? Same thing that, that Moses is saying. But you get to chapter 11, you get into chapter 12. You get to chapter 13, chapter 14. and chapter 13 especially, as they're getting ready to spy out this land, Right? Now, I want you to compare something here with me, because I've always found this part fascinating. I want you to keep your finger there in Numbers 13, okay? And go over to Deuteronomy chapter 1 with your other fingers. Do some switching back and forth, because it's interesting how these stories play out. And I want you to see both sides of the coin here. Deuteronomy 1, 20 through 24. And Numbers 11. And not Numbers 11, excuse me. Yeah, number 13, excuse me. Yes, number 13. <clears throat> so look at Deuteronomy 1. 20, starting in verse 20. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is about to give us. That, that, that's a will happen statement. He will give it to us. He's about to give it to us. See, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord the God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. He's asking you to what? Trust him. Trust me. Don't be afraid of all this stuff, because I've got you. Then all of you approached me and said, Let us send men before us, that they may search out the land for us, and bring back to us word of the way by which we should go up, and the cities which we shall enter. And the thing pleased me, and I took twelve of your men, one man for each tribe, and they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. Took some of the fruit of the lands, brought it down to us. They brought us back a report and said, It is a good land, which the Lord our God is about to give us. Stop there for a second. Now go over to 13 of Numbers. Now, after you read this, you may say, That's nothing. No big deal. But I'm wondering if there is something to the order of events here and how this happens. Number 13, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. They're going to have the land, right? God said it was so. But here in Numbers 13, how does it read to you? What do you see? You see God saying, Send out people. In Deuteronomy 1, you see Moses saying, you came to me and said, let's send out. That sounded good to me, and so we did it. Now, I wonder, a couple things could be happening here. Perhaps Deuteronomy 1, the way it happened is the people came and they said, Moses, we'd really like to spy out the land. Moses said, you know, that makes good logical sense, okay? And he went and he talked to God, and God said, okay, send out people and do it this way. It could be another answer to that. It could be that, that God is, is saying, do it this way, do, do this, Moses. But also the people are, are saying, we want to do this too. But there's, there's the, the issue of trust again. And the reason the people want to do it is because 
That makes logical sense to me as a man. And if I'm going to go in and fight these people, I want to know what I'm coming up against. That makes sense for me to get my army ready, to get my people ready. But God is, doesn't really need you to actually do that. God can prepare you. God can, can move the way and lead the way, drive them out, do whatever he needs to do. Yeah, he can do all things. So technically, I don't even need to spy out the land. Now, I'm wondering if that's a problem with trust here again with the people. They're coming to Moses and saying, I can't handle this completely. I, I know God says he's going to do it, but I'm not so sure about this. So let's send some people out there and let's take a look. And Moses says, okay, we'll do that. He, he seems to say it's okay. God says, okay, do that. But at the very beginning of this going in to get the land, there is a trust issue between the people and God. That I'm not so sure that you can actually do this, God. I need some more proof. Now, God is, it seems like God is willing to say, okay, I'll work with you here. I'll give you the proof. I'll let you go and spy out the land. But don't be afraid about what you see either. Because you're going to see people that, that, are, that are big. You're going to see these things. But don't be afraid because I'm going to take care of you. And that's kind of what happens in chapter 13. They go and they spy out the land, right? Then they come back and what do they say? It certainly does flow with milk and onion. Verse 27. There is great opportunity in that land. It certainly does flow with milk and honey. Verse 28 of Numbers 13. What's the first word in verse 28? Nevertheless. Nevertheless. There's your but statement, you know. The statements that people say, I really like you, but. <laughs> or I really want to do that, but. There's that, that statement that defines, or that, that one word that defines the rest of what's going to come out of their mouth. And this nevertheless for these people is what is going to define the rest of what comes out of their mouth. At least these ten that are giving this report. The people in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country. And the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people. And what did he say? We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against these people. They are too strong for us. They are too strong for us. And look at verse 33. There also we saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim, and we became like what? Grasshoppers in our own sight. So that we were in their sight. So, and so were we in their sight. Notice that own sight. We were like these little things here in our own sight. That's what I look like to them. At least that's what I perceive I look like to them. But they forgot somebody else's sight, didn't they? Whose sight this should they be looking through? They should be looking through God's sight here. God has said, this is your land. You're going to go up and get it. But now I go up and I look at it and I say, I'm not so sure about that, God. Just like Moses had just said, I'm not so sure that you can actually feed these 600,000 people, God. Man, how, how soon we forget what God has done. How soon they forget what God has done. That's a, that's a common problem with man over and over again, isn't it? Look at verses 1 through 9 of chapter 14 here. In this first part of this, this, this nine section here of, of, these, of setting the tone for trust me and then... Don't give up on me. Because that's what God is asking Moses to do. That's what God is asking these people to do. And that's the theme of this week. You go from trust me to don't give up on me. And God is saying, don't give up on me. I have brought you through all of this other stuff. Don't give up on me yet. One through nine. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel did what? Grumbled. Against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would we had died in the land of Egypt, or would we have died in this wilderness? So grateful are they. Wish we were dead. And why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly and the congregation and the sons of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephthah, and those who had spied out the land tore their clothes, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Here's the key point to all this. Only do 
not what? Rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land. They shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. And Joshua is going to say that later on too. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. God says over and over, don't be afraid. Trust me and don't give up on me. If you're looking at people through your sight, yeah, you look like that. You look like this tiny little grasshopper. But when you look at God through people and, and what God has promised you through God's eyes, you see a much different type of thing. But that's the first, that's the first box there. In the don't give up on me is this little grasshopper, this, this little cricket grasshopper guy. You look like that? Yeah. If you're using your own vision, you look like that. If you stop trusting God, you look like that. If you give up on God, you'll look like that. If you don't give up on God, then you can do what he says. And God is... What did I do with that? Oh, there it is. And God is waiting for people who will trust him, isn't he? Oh, by the way, did somebody clean this this week? Portia, thank you. I thought you did that. It looked so much cleaner this morning when I came in. <laughs> it was all looking like that. Last, thank you so much. I appreciate it. It at least started, the first one was really good. The, the, the next ones will not be so good. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. <laughs> Carl, Carl, Carl. Oh, Carl. God is waiting for a bunch of people to follow him. And what he's going to wait for is, and these people, since they have, they have decided to say, uh, no, we're not going to trust you, God. And in fact, we're going to give up on you. We're not going to trust you. He's decided to say, okay, well, I'm going to teach you to trust me. I'm, I'm going to give you some time to get used to the idea of trusting me. And how much time does he give his people to trust him here? Forty years. He gives them 40 years. Right? He says, okay, you don't trust me? Here's some 40 years. 40 years because you... You grumbled and you complained. Forty years. Forty years of, of wandering through the desert because you decided to grumble and complain. There's your nose right there. Forty years to wander through the desert and learn how to trust me. And God takes care of them all the way through the desert. Takes care of them. Look at chapter 14 again of Numbers. And look at verses 26, starting in verse 26. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I've heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. Say to them, As long as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses shall fall in the wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, for twenty years old and upward." Who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephthah, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, here, listen to this verse. In verse 31, it's interesting because one of their complaints at the beginning of that chapter is God brought us out here to die, and our children are going to die. And look at verse 31. Your children, however, whom you said would become prey, I will bring them in. You're so worried about the children becoming prey. You don't think I can take care of them? Your corpses are going to fall and they're going to make it in. And they shall know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses shall fall in the wilderness. Boom. Be strong and courageous. Uh, No, God, no, thank you. We don't think you can actually do it. Okay, then I'm going to give you some time. I'm going to give you some time to trust me, to learn how to trust me. I'm going to give you some time to see what it means to not give up on me. Because I haven't given up on you. But you need to learn what it means to not give up on me. So they wander. And they're wandering and they're wandering. Now we're going to skip ahead here to practically the end of Deuteronomy. There's wandering. There's wandering. Now go over to Deuteronomy 34. Here we get to the end of someone's life and the transition of power going from Moses to Joshua. 
And in chapter 34, Moses is going to die. But he's not done yet. Because at the beginning, actually, keep your finger there. Sorry, I want you to go back to Deuteronomy 1 as we're thinking about Deuteronomy 34. Because Deuteronomy 34 and Deuteronomy 1 have some interesting, for me, some interesting tie-ins to the theme before and now. The trust in God and the don't give up on me part. As they've given up, they've, they've stopped trusting, and now God has taken them through this wandering. And, and Moses is going to die before he ever gets to the land. He's going to get to see it, but he's not going to get to walk into it. In chapter 34. But at the very beginning of Deuteronomy, he lays out some things. He kind of goes over their history. He kind of tells them things. And in chapter 1, I want you to notice these parallels in these verses. 34 through 40. Then the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry, and he took an oath, saying, Here he goes over again, why you're not in this land. Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and his sons I will give the land on which he has set foot, because he has followed the Lord fully. The Lord was angry with me also on your account, saying, Not even you shall enter there. That's 37 years around after this number is 20. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter there. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Moreover, your little ones, whom you said would become prey, and your sons, who this day have no knowledge of good and evil, shall enter there, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. Now notice the parallels in those verses. Look at verses 35 and 39. 35 Not one of these men, this evil generation, will enter it. 39, your little ones, these will enter. 36, Caleb's going to enter. 37, or 38, excuse me, Joshua's going to enter. And at the very center of that text is Moses, his example. I'm not entering. You've got faithfulness and faithfulness surrounded by unfaithfulness there. 37 there, unfaithful. 36, faithful. 38, faithful. Moses is saying, pay attention to these words. I'm not, I wasn't faithful. I, I made this mistake. I'm not entering. You made this mistake. You're not entering. These are entering. The ones that took, took God at His word. The ones who trusted Him. The ones who didn't give up on God. They're getting in. So you go from grumbling and complaining after, being, well, after looking like grasshoppers in their sights. In, in your own eyes and in their eyes are what you think they see in you. You're a grasshopper. You're not worth anything. God can't do it, even though he just got you out of Egypt, did all the other stuff. Can't do it. He is now taking them through 40 years, and now they're beginning to enter the land there. I've got three or four different ones. I don't know which one I want to draw for this one. Um, I'll try this one. Because as soon as you know that, or as soon as you see it, you'll, you'll get it. Well, assuming I can draw. Does that make sense? What is that? Secret agent? Why do we got to bring color into this? It's just, it's just, it's just a spy. Come on. He's kind of, he's kind of both. It's a spy. A spy. (laughs) That is a spy. What happens in Joshua chapter 2? Now they're moving into the land. And what does Joshua do? Sends some spies out. Yes. Sends spies out. Now notice in Joshua chapter 2. How many spies does he send out? Two spies. You think that's significant at all? I wonder, I wonder if he's thinking, they sent out 12, two came back. We're sending out two this time. Let's just send out two. Let's just send out two guys. He sends out two, and they go to look at Jericho, and who do they run into? Rahab. Rahab the harlot. Look at verses 23 and 24. After they've gone out and they, they've met up with this lady who has said, we've heard about you. We know that you, who you are. We know what God you serve. And, and the news of you has spread. And I am scared. 
and I need your protection. I want to be protected. Verse, thir- uh, verse 11, let me go back there. Verse 11, when she's saying, And we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven, above, earth, above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. And they say, okay, we will do that. You put this out there, this scarlet rope. If it's there, okay. If it's not, well, it's, it's, it's your problem. Verses 23 and 24. Then these two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun. And they related to him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands and all the inhabitants of the land, moreover, have melted away before us. Look how God is, God is not only saving Rahab, but he is also through Rahab encouraging the spies and encouraging his people saying, people have heard about me and they are going to, to tremble and, and melt away before you if you trust me. And what do they do? Do they trust him this time? They do, don't they? They do trust him this time. In, verse, in chapter 3, they're going to go out there and they're going to take care of Jericho. And Jericho is going to fall. Uh, let's see, Joshua 10. I want you to go over to Joshua 10. Just another one of the, the battles that they, they engage in. This time with the Amorites, 12 through 15. They're battling the Amorites. And Joshua is saying, man, we need some more time here. We need to take care of these guys, but we don't have enough time. And Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day of the Lord, delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still in Gibeon. And O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemy. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? Has the sun stopped and the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for a whole day? And there was no day like that before it or after it, when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. Boom. So 40 years later, I spy with my little eyes some really good stuff. And this time, I believe what God is telling us. And I believe that Rahab, who incidentally is in the line of who? Jesus. Pretty interesting, too, that fact that this woman is in the line of Jesus all the way down through history. Man, amazing stuff. But God has said, okay, you you look like grasshoppers in their sight. Here's 40 years to learn. Your children are going to make it in. The children are making it into the land. And they're now going in to, to possess the land. And Joshua says, all right, let's go do this. Sends out the spies. The spies go. Bring a good report back and say, yes, we can definitely do it. Now, in the book of Joshua, we've got this going on. Because at the end of Joshua, I don't want to skip too far ahead, but the end of Joshua kind of sums up the theme of Joshua for me. Well, it's a ticket. Anybody pull those tickets? And wait in those lines. Now serving, usually you draw the biggest number. Now serving, the biggest number. But here's what I want you to remember. Now serving, 12. What, 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 what this is, the first 12 books of Joshua, the first cha- 12 chapters of Joshua is basically lining out the battles, the things that are happening with God's people. He takes them in and he, and he brings them through these battles. First 12 chapters. The next 12 chapters, he's dishing out the land and he's distributing the land to his people. And he's saying, okay, you live here, you live here, you live here, and these, these people went here, and all of this stuff is, is this. And, and he, over and over again, I think Joshua and God is saying to these people, okay, so you were grasshoppers, your, your parents were grasshoppers, you, you are now... Learning, learn to trust me, learn to not give up on me, and now I'm asking you to serve me. And basically, it's, it's now serving God, now serving 12. 12 tribes, 12 books, or 12 chapters, 
each divided up there. And God is saying, okay, now you, you serve me. I've given you what I've asked you, to, I've given you what I've promised, and now you serve me. I'm going to even give you peace in the land. Now serve me. Joshua chapter 23. Jump over there really quick. Joshua chapter 23, very first verse. After the 12 chapters where they're fighting and, and then as, as he's distributing the land, at the beginning of chapter 23 it says, Now it came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all, her in, all their enemies on every side, and Joshua was old, advanced in years. There's faith, there's trust. They've trusted God, they've had faith in God, they haven't given up on Him, and He hasn't given up on them. He's taken them through the battles, He's distributed the land, and now they're serving God in this land. And the time comes for Joshua to go, because he's old and advanced in years, like it says. And one of the most, I guess, maybe famous verses of Joshua is Joshua 24, 15, or 14, and all those, but, but that 15th verse where he, he sets out this, this ultimatum for the people. He says, okay, you get, to, you get to make a choice here. And what does he say to them? He says, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose yourselves who you will serve. Who are you going to serve? Now, there's the now serving. Who are you going to serve? Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living... But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered, what did they say? Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord is our God. And, and notice, they, they remember here, they understand, He's the one that brought them out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did these great sights and signs in our, wonder, in, our, in our presence and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the people through whose mist we passed. So they know God has taken care of them. And they're ready to serve God. And that's a good message there at the end of Joshua. And Joshua's laid down the gauntlet. Which one are you going to do? And they say, we will serve God. We will serve the Lord. All the people in verse 21, no, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua in 22, you are witnesses against yourselves. That you have chosen for, your, for yourselves or you have chosen you yourselves, the Lord, to serve Him. And they said, we are witnesses. We're going to do it. We're going to give up all the other gods. We're going to serve God. So they are now serving God. But, and here's that, that nevertheless or but word again. What happens? They get through they, they, all these battles. They distribute the land. God gives them peace there in 23 Joshua says, okay, I'm going to throw down the gauntlet. Who are you going to serve? They say, of course, we're going to serve God. And they do. But what happens? Of all on the line, they change their mind. And they stop serving God. And they start doing something else. Start doing whatever is right in their own eyes. Another famous verse, right? And because they do that, things change. God gives them over. <clears throat> In about 350 years, God says, okay, this mess is crazy. You keep going back and forth. So I'm going to ask you to return to sender. Who's your sender? I'm your sender. I'm the one that sent you. I'm the one that bore you. I'm going to ask you to return to me. God never gives up, but the people decide to give up, right? That cycle in Judges, what's ha what happens? They're, they're fat and happy and, and lazy, and then they give up. They, they go and serve other gods, and then, boom, things don't go their way. And then eventually they cry out to God. God delivers them through the Judges. But over and over again, this, this happens. One of the Judges I like to, to think about is Gideon. Gideon and the people that were oppressing them at that time, man, chasing them off their land, taking their food. Every time they would, they would get some food, they'd take their food. They had to live in caves, right? 
And, they, and God shows up to meet Gideon. And what's Gideon doing when God shows up to meet him? Well, he's threshing, threshing wheat in a wine press. And God says, hey, oh, valiant warrior, you guy who is hiding here threshing wheat in a wine press, you valiant warrior. I, it's interesting how God sees what is not there yet. Amen. He knows Gideon's going to be a valiant warrior, but when he shows up with him, he's hiding, which, which makes good sense because they're going to steal your stuff if you don't hide. So he hides and he, and he threshes this wheat. But he meets him in that wine press and he says, oh, valiant warrior, it is time to serve God. It's time to get, get, get in rhyme with God. It's time to deliver your people. Raise an army. And of course, he raises an army, but God says, man, that's too many. He whittles it down to 300 men and says, okay, I can work with that because now you're going to know it's not just you, it's me that's doing the delivering. Yeah. In verse 833, not verse 83, chapter 8, verse 33. After Gideon goes through all of that, it came about as soon as Gideon was dead that the sons of Israel played, again played the harlot with the balls and made the ball beareth their God. Gideon delivers them. He does all of this. God delivers them. And then, boom, the people go right back to the balls. Go right back to something else and start that cycle all over again. The return to cinder doesn't last long. They eventually say, well, I don't trust you anymore. I don't trust you. This next judge is another famous one. Go over to Judges 13. I'll talk about him really quick. Yes, Samson. And Samson is known for his what? Lovely long hair. Lovely long hair and maybe, maybe some muscles, you know, who knows. I have a tendency to think he might not have been the Arnold Schwarzenegger type. He was probably more of a, a regular dude so that people would recognize that when he's being used, that God is really working through him. But this guy with long, long flowing hair, this Nazarite, is going to deliver his people from the Philistines. But how many problems does this guy have? How many, how many things does he struggle with? struggles with quite a few things, doesn't he? He, has struggled with, he, he, might, he might think he might struggle with anger. You might think he definitely struggles with women. He, yeah, a lady man, sure. <laughs> he's got issues. He's got problems with ladies. He's got a lot of problems with ladies. In fact, it's interesting. In chapter 14, verse 17, as he's being pressured, this, this woman here, that, that he's, she's trying to force this riddle out of him. Entice your husband in verse 15 that he may tell us this riddle. He's asked them this riddle. And in verse 17, he kind of gives us a clue as to how, how Samson deals with temptation, how Samson deals with women. It says, however, she wept before him seven days while the feast lasted. And it came about on the seventh day that he told her because she pressed him so hard. She then told the riddle to the sons of her people. She, he pressed, she pressed him so hard. And then if you go over to 16, verse 16, again, the pressing. 16, 16. And it came about, this is Delilah now, trying to find out where is the strength of what's going to make you weak so that we can take you. 16, 16, it came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. <laughs> There's a pressing here. But, but what's interesting is as, as we look at God delivering his people, he works through some judges like this one here who is riddled with faults, who makes bad decisions all over the place, and yet is, is, is being used by God and is going to be used by God. But it, but it kind of gives us a clue as to how God wants us to handle or not handle sin. How, how, why do you stay around to be pressed? Why do you hang around that sin to be pressed? You notice he's being pressed and pressed and pressed. Why? Because he's exposing himself to that sin over and over again. He's allowing himself to be pressed. He's allowing himself to be, to be kind of coerced. But Paul says what? Flee from immorality. Flee from any sign of immorality. Flee from all of that. Get, get away from it. Don't do any of it. Don't allow yourself to be pressed. Samson continually puts himself into situations where he can be pressed by the bad side until he finally 
gives in. And you can only take so much pressing. As a human being, you're going you're to be pressed so long, and then you're probably just going to go do what Samson did, as long as you expose yourself to that over and over again. It also keys us back to the very first one. There's, there's a big, big, big correlation here for me. Because in the very first one, we drew that, that little grasshopper, and it's because they said, in our own sight, we look like grasshoppers, right? What happens to Samson? When they catch him, when, they cut his, when she cuts his hair, they come in, they catch him. What do they do to him? What are the things that they do? Gouge those eyes, right? Done. Get him out. This guy could not see. But when he could not see, he finally actually saw. At the very end of his life, he finally sees what he couldn't see with his real eyes. He saw it with his spiritual eyes. In, in that very first thing we drew, they, they were looking through their physical eyes, and they couldn't see what God saw through his spiritual eyes, and what he wanted them to see through their spiritual eyes. Samson, the same way, couldn't see past his physical eyes to his spiritual eyes until those physical eyes were gone. There's never a man so blind that cannot see. If you refuse to see, you're blind. And that's Samson, blind, pressed so hard, through these physical things, and exposing himself constantly to the pressing. God says, don't expose yourself to that. But it's interesting that he still uses men like that, still uses people like that, flawed people, people who struggle, people who don't always get it right. But you also notice that at the end of his life, what did he do? He did not give up on God, and God did not give up on him. At the end of his life, he is still with God. Now, we move from Judges to 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, we're going to have a transition of power. Hannah is going to have a son, right? As you remember, Hannah in chapter 2 there, who's, well, chapter 2 is her prayer, She's, she's wanting a son. She's, she's waiting for a son. And God gives her a son. And she says, okay, I'll give God my son back. Eli is the, is the priest. And she dedicates Samuel to God's service. Samuel's in God's service with Eli, this man who is very old in verse 22 of chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. Eli's very old. And he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things, these evil things that I hear from all these people? There, there's something wrong in Eli's family. There's something wrong going on. And Eli is experiencing this firsthand. And God is, is about to choose the next man that he's going to work through. And that happens in that very same chapter there where God picks Samuel. Excuse me, the next chapter, chapter 3, where God picks Samuel. And Samuel comes and he says, I heard somebody call my name and... And Eli says, it wasn't me. Samuel goes back to bed. Somebody called my name. Eli says, it's not me. Then he finally realizes, now God is talking to Samuel. And he tells Samuel in verse 10, the Lord, or excuse me, verse 9. And Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and it shall be as if he calls you that you say, speak, Lord, for thy servant is listening. So Samuel went and laid down in his place. Then the Lord came and stood and called at the, as, as the other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for thy servant is listening. That's why I drew that ear there. I said, Can you hear me now? God is saying, Can you hear me now? Are you listening? And Samuel is saying, Yeah, yes, Lord, your servant is listening. Samuel is there to turn the people back to God, to get their minds refocused back on God, but it doesn't go exactly as planned, because even in chapter 8, go over to chapter 8, Samuel is turning the people back to God, or trying to turn the people back to God, God is saying, can you hear me now? But now the people have noticed something in Samuel and his family. Verse 5, and they said to him, behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Here is where things take a drastic turn, right? And God says to them, actually he says to Samuel, warn the people. You don't want a king. 
The king is going to be bad for you. He's going to, he's going to rule over you, and you don't want a king. What's the matter with me? Why not just have me? Again, there's a trust issue here, isn't it? It's almost like they're saying, we, we, we want to look like everybody else. We want a thing like everybody else. We don't believe you can do what, you're, what you say you'll do. It's not good enough anymore. We need a king. He warns them about that. But what do the people say? Verse 19 of chapter 8. Nevertheless, here's again that, that but statement. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us, fight our battles. How's that working out for you? Not so good. No, we don't want to trust you, God. We want a king. God says, you don't want a king. He's going to take your land. He's going to send your sons out to die. They're going to fight his battles. They say, nope, we want a king. So what happens? Hmm? Gives him a king. Gives him a king, and he goes and he looks, and he finds this, this big strapping fella named Saul, right? And what happens when he goes to present this king? Anybody remember where they find him? Hiding in what? No, he's the uh, he's the luggage king is what he is. He's the luggage king. He's hiding in baggage. In nine two, he says, "Go go pick this son." Had a son named Saul, choice and handsome man. He was not a more handsome person than among the sons of Israel. His shoulders from his shoulders. And up, he was taller than any of the people. So he looks like a leader. He looks like a guy that you would be willing to follow. But then you get over to chapter 10 and verse 22. Samuel brings all the tribes of Israel near in verse 20. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families. And then in verse 22, Therefore they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, Behold, he is hiding himself by the baggage. So they ran and took him from there. And when he stood up among the people, he was taller than any other people from his shoulders upward. This king, this luggage king here, this one that they say, okay, give it to us because we want to look like all the other nations. We want him to fight our battles. We want this. You got to go find him in the luggage because he's hiding. The, most, the tallest guy, the best looking guy, the one that looks like a leader. But not all the people are impressed. Once they get the king, some are impressed. But look at verse 27. Certain worthless men said, how can this one deliver us? And they despised him. And he did not bring, they did not bring him any present, but he kept silent. Interesting thing there. He kept silent. This luggage king, who looks like a, a ruler, and God has, God has picked him. He says, this guy is going to do it. People don't, not all the people like him. Not all the people think he can deliver them. But you ask for a king, you got one. You got the luggage king here. And almost immediately there, you've got chapter 10, 27, where some people don't like him. It's a time not for division, it's a time for. Merging. You take, this, you take this king who is hidden in the baggage, who says, I might be the king, but I'm scared to death here. In verse 27 of chapter 10, they don't, some of them don't like him. After that, there's some people that rise up, and he has to deliver them. In verse 5 of chapter 11, it says, Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and he said, What is the matter with the people that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. He took an yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And he numbered them in Bezek, and the, num sons, num and the sons of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. They said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. So the messengers went and told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. 
But they didn't all go out to him. Not all of them went out. Look at verse 12. After the deliverance, after this, after the, the Amorites, until they struck down the Amorites there in verse 11. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that, they, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, What? Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. So this, this luggage king, this guy who is hiding, has now been pressed into service, has gone out and delivered his people, but he said, you need to come and, come and fight with us, and not all of them went and fought with him. Not all of them even liked him. But instead of going and, and, and wreaking havoc across the land and, and clearing out these people, he goes to renew his people, and he says, okay, no more death. We need to unite. We need to be one. And so he tries to merge these two groups here, tries to unify you go from the luggage king to a time to merge, time to get together, time to be one. Which is always a good message for God's people. To be one. To unify. To merge. To not give up on God, just like Saul didn't even give up on the people that didn't like him. Saul didn't give up on the people that didn't come and fight for them. And God didn't give up on his people. This whole message here, you go from trust me to don't give up. God says, don't give up on me. So my, aunt, my question to you today is, have you given up on him? It's easy to give up on him sometimes. It's easy to say, I don't trust anymore. It's easy to do that. But he never gave up on us. Romans chapter 5, when did he love us? While we were what? Sinners. While we were still enemies. God loved us and sent his son for us. He never gives up on us. I'm going to ask you to trust Him today. And He asks you to trust Him. He asks you to trust Him when He cuts away your sins in the waters of baptism, when He washes you, when He rises you up into newness of life. He asks you to trust Him that those things are done. He asks you to trust Him that eternal life is indeed yours with Him. And He asks you all along the way to not give up on Him, just as His people don't give up on Him. So you're... you're your task this week, are you giving up on God? Do you trust Him? And are you giving up on Him? Two questions to ask yourself this week. If you are giving up on Him, change your mind right now. Don't do that anymore. Turn around, trust Him. Don't give up on God because He hasn't given up on you. If you've given up on Him this morning and you need prayers of the body, if you need help this morning, we're here to pray with you. We're here to, to help you. We're here to love you. If you need that this morning, come forward as we stand and sing.